Welcome to the NAFSA International Educator Podcast, the official voice of International Educator Magazine, brought to you by NAFSA, Association for International Educators. Hi, I'm Charlotte West, contributor to International Educator Magazine. In this month's episode of the IE Podcast, I'm talking with Lynn Schaefer, the Vice President of Administration and Finance at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. One reason I'm talking with her is because UMBC's international office has an exemplary working relationship with Schaefer's office. With 30 years of experience in finance at three higher education institutions, Schaefer breaks down for us what international educators need to know about the budget process, common misconceptions about finance on campus, and more. Here's our conversation. Thanks for joining us, Lynn. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your current role at UMBC? I've been at UMBC as Vice President of Administration and Finance for almost well, about 15 and a half years. And came here from same position at Oakland University in Michigan and prior to that Wayne State University in Michigan. So I've been doing this kind of work for 30 years. And before that, I was doing budget work for the state of Michigan. <laughs> so a financial person for a long time. One of the things I really enjoy about my job is that I have a very diverse portfolio. In addition to all of the financial aspects of the university, I also oversee facilities and human resources and the police department and auxiliary services and you know, on and on. Um, so every day is different. We're kind of invisible to most of the campus unless things are going badly. <laughs> so, but that's how it should be. We recognize that our role is to uh, provide the foundation for the university to be successful, to make sure that everything works well, to make sure that people have the personnel and the facilities and everything they need to be successful. What do international education leaders need to understand about what your job entails and what you're looking for in budget proposals that they might make? I think it's really important to understand that I don't make the decisions on what to in, what to allocate funds to and what not to allocate funds to. Uh, what I do is evaluate proposals, share information, share perspective, share analysis with my colleagues. The, at UMBC, it happens to be a group of vice presidents and deans who are like the management council for the university. And that's the group that makes those alloc budget allocation decisions. I usually advise those who want to ask for funding that they need to connect whatever it is they're proposing to the university's mission, strategic plan, strategic goals and objectives, that there has to be a reason. Uh, I have this, I have a, this is a truism from 30 years in the business. There are so many really great ideas of what to do on a university campus, especially because a lot of very smart people who are passionate about what they do, and there just isn't enough resources to support all of those things. So how do you decide which of the many proposals that come up should be the ones who get funded? So. There are many ways to think about that. We have a saying at, at UMBC, multi-year process. 
So it's very rare that we can do a big thing in one year. So usually it's let's, let's plan to phase something over a longer period of time. We have to think about what we need to do first. So if we want to build a new program or expand on something that we think is important and yet we don't have the resources, then how do we get the resources? So then we need to maybe invest in enrollment uh, growth initiatives or invest in fundraising or in other kinds of ways to generate resources to cover those things that are like sort of the long-term vision priorities. So what does that look like in the current context? How do you balance competing priorities at a time of decreased revenue and increased expense? Obviously, this is sort of an unprecedented time for higher education, but what does that look like for you? So the first thing that we had to do was determine how we were going to allocate the budget reductions that we were facing because the state cut our budget. Uh, We had to refund a lot of money to students who left in middle of March for remote learning. You know, we had, that was again, a decision from the, that management council that I talked about, vice presidents and deans. And so we, we sort of took a step back and said, what are the things that we can do that won't have an impact on our core mission? And can we cut there? So we cut things like a planned increase in facilities renewal, utilities, you know, we stripped it to the bone and said, okay, we're just going to have to tighten our belt on utilities and make sure that we have savings there. And then whatever was left, we gave everybody time over the course of the year to figure out how to cut their budgets by doing a hiring freeze. And everybody at the highest levels of the university took a temporary salary reduction, those who made $100,000 and above. Um, So that's what we did for this year. And thank goodness the governor's budget for the coming year uh, did not have an additional additional reduction for higher education. Uh, And so right now we're focusing on enrollment and that means not just attracting new students, even though that's an important priority, but also making sure we're giving good support to the students who are here to keep them here and to get, have them be successfully moving through their programs. So far, I think that's working pretty well. Along the same lines, when you're looking at how international education has been impacted by the pandemic, there's been a huge decrease in international students and subsequent decrease in revenue from international student tuition. That's huge for a lot of public universities. But study abroad is also often a self-sustaining unit funded by study abroad fees. When those just came to a complete halt, we had these significant refunds. So what advice do you have for those offices as they move forward and resume operations whenever travel is possible again? So I think that, um... We have to learn from this experience and knowing that something can happen that just cuts it off like that is a lesson that we need to think about what does that mean for the future? So as we're reinstating study abroad, how do we do that in a way that protects the interests of the students? You know, so we put in over the past 
like year and a half, we've put in a number of tools that helps uh, that help us to make sure we know where the students are, make sure that we can do something if something happens to them where they are and get them taken care of and get them back here. And you know, we had we had a relatively modest international student population uh, and student study abroad population. Um, but even still, you know, it was a little um, nerve wracking at the best to figure out a way to get them home safely. For international students, really understanding how quickly the environment can change, I think leads us to think, okay, how much, how do we balance the risk with the reward? So we definitely would like to have more international students at UMBC. And we were on course to do that in the fall. And then of course that all fell apart because our students couldn't get out of their countries to come here. So yeah, I, I just think being cognizant of that and balancing the risk with the potential reward uh, is something that we have to think about together. What advice do you have for international offices to help them understand the big picture budget for the institution and how they should work within that context? I would say that it's always beneficial to pay close attention to the budget messages that are shared with the campus. Get a good sense of where the campus stands on, on the overall budget and the different pieces of the budget. Uh, tuition and fees, that's where international students come into play and also state appropriations for public institutions like us. For some private institutions, they need to be cognizant of what's going on in the, in the markets where their investment of their endowment is returning support dollars to the campus. So that's one thing. I think that depending on where the international office is, reporting to the provost, reporting to the president, where, wherever it is, ask good questions. Make sure you understand where you fit in the priorities and where, where there are opportunities to request additional support. That ties into my next question. How can international offices align their programs with institutional priorities in such a way that might make it more likely that they get the budget approval that they're looking for? Well, of course, the very, the very first thing you need to do is know what the priorities are and then think about how those relate to international so the broad functions of international offices and recognizing that maybe what the idea that you have of what you'd like to do doesn't necessarily match with the way the university is viewing uh, the future and then thinking about how you could fit in with those priorities. So understand the priorities, match your thoughts to helping the university move move its priorities forward. What are your thoughts about the strategy of creating an international strategic plan that aligns with the university strategic plan? Definitely. But it, but so it is more programmatic than budget, but it helps to envision how the program fits in with the university's budget so that you can make the case for funding. I, you know, I just have this sense that for some period of time, we are going to be very stretched on resources 
in higher education. And so thinking about from, it, from the international offices, how those offices can help to generate resources, not overly use resources, uh, you know, however that might be able to align with this period where we're gonna be looking at scarce resources. As the CFO, how do you strike a balance between the financial and business aspects of higher education and international education in particular with the elements that don't boost the bottom line? So I don't think of higher education as a business per se. Uh, I think about it as what is the most effective and efficient way that we can meet our mission. So what is it, how do we allocate our resources to most effectively meet the mission? And while I certainly agree that international students add tremendously to the character of a place, they, we don't have extra money <laughs> around to support those students. And so there has to be some, they have to bring the resources in that helps them, that help them fit into the mission of the institution. What should the international office aim for when submitting budget proposals? As I'm looking at budget proposals, the ones that make my eyebrows go up are ones where they didn't think through the implications or they thought too big to start with without any basis for justifying the request. So making sure that there's clarity on what the outcomes will be and how the finances work. So what it will cost, what it will generate, is there a net, and, and tying specifically to the university's key strategic priorities. And then, you know, maybe start small so that you can prove the concept. So ones that are grandiose, uh, I usually don't take very seriously. Ones that just say, give us money because we're really good can't take that too seriously either. Even though it's true, you know, even though I'm sure it's a, there are so many great ideas, there has to be purpose. There has to be um, sustainability. At UMBC, what has the international office done well? Is there an example of a program that David DeMaria, your SIO proposed, and you said, yes, let's do it. So one of the things that I thought was done very effectively, uh, they proposed an international student fee to cover the cost of all the supports that they were, all the special supports they were giving to international students to make them successful once they got here. And they did that by talking with their students, getting support from their students, comparing the fee that they were proposing to other very similar campuses and not just a couple, but a bunch of other campuses so that we could see that this was standard practice and the students were in support. And, you know, David had established trust long before this. And so we knew that we could count on him to implement those services well. So that was great. That allowed us to expand, uh, expand those services to our students, which is wonderful. He also brought, um, proposal for, this is like standard practice at a lot of places, but we hadn't been doing it like the travel registry and travel insurance. And, you know, the costs were very modest. And when we, he was able to present 
the downside of not having insurance or the registry and so it was able to tell numerous real stories about our folks and others that were in the news that we all had heard about. And we said, oh my goodness, yes, we have to do that. <laughs> so it's not, you know, he hasn't come with extravagant requests. It's very measured and very, you know, very incremental that does establish trust and confidence. It sounds like you've beefed up some of your risk management and travel security and safety in the wake of the pandemic. So one of the questions that we had was, what can the international office contribute to discussions about risk, in particular financial risk? Many times global events have an impact on higher education that some of us who are in the trenches don't even realize. So uh, it's been very helpful to have David talking to us about what's going on in, in the broader context, either immigration or um, travel restrictions or any of those sorts of things, because those had an impact on our enrollment. So the risk associated with international events goes both ways. You know, it's, it's risk to enrollment, it's risk to our folks who might be abroad especially as we look to continue to expand on all those fronts, you know, scholars and students and study abroad, we need to be on top of those things. So David is a good mitigation strategy, having David DeMaria there, good mitigation strategy. What are some of the common misconceptions that people have about budget and finances on campuses? Here's an interesting commonality across all of my years this sense that there is a secret stash of money that, you know, if only you knew how to get it, get a hold of it, <laughs> you know, it's there and they're just holding it, not for you. Not true. Not true. So our finances are an open book. There is no secret stash. That's one of the misconceptions. Another misconception is that I control the money. So yes, I, we are responsible for bringing the money in, for accounting for it, for dispersing it. But decisions about allocation, I think are not appropriately made by the CFO. It should be a, a consolidated leadership decision so that everybody's on the same page. I'm not sure that it's like that at every campus, but uh, and the campuses that I've been on, that's been really important to me. Yeah, I think those are, those are big ones. In higher education, people's time is sometimes not seen as having an associated cost like in many other industries. For example, a meeting with five higher level managers about cost-cutting measures may not end up saving much money when you factor in each person's hourly rate. How do you reconcile the cost of people's times with the value that such meetings bring? One of the things that keeps me in higher education is the collaborative nature of our work. And so long ago, I accepted that that meant meetings. <laughs> many of them, many of them longer than maybe I would prefer, but you know, it's really important that everybody is on the same page. And so uh, I think that it's an investment in having a community that is all moving in the, in the same direction. I don't really see any of it as a waste. I see it as an investment in our community. What other advice do you have for international education leaders on campuses? 
I would say that one, one piece of advice is to establish your network across the campus. Make sure that you have good relationships with the bursar's office, with financial aid, with the admissions office, undergrad and graduate admissions, with the provost's office, with the CFO, with, um, you know, people where it makes sense for you to be involved, student affairs and student life kinds of things. All of those are important to the success of international offices and international offices can be important to the success of all of those. And relationships, I believe that relationships uh, make the world go round and having a good solid network of people you trust and who trust you will help immensely to moving forward. Thank you for joining us for this edition of NAFSA International Educator Podcast. Please visit nafsa.org to read more from International Educator Magazine and to join us as a member of NAFSA. Together we can make a better world.